Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And at the end of every month, we do a wrap-up episode for the month with Emily Jashinsky, culture editor over at The Federalist, senior fellow with us here at IWF, um, and also with YAF, uh, teaching conservative journalists how not to get arrested. Um, and and she has a show over at Crystal and Sagar's Breaking Points. Uh, it's called counterpoints and it's now on wednesdays over there so you probably catch emily's work so she wears 20 million hats this is her 21st million hat uh to or i should say <laughs> this hat is not worth a million hats in itself that was a, a numbers game um but uh i feel like there has been so much that's happened since the last time we talked and i was just um going back and checking because it it just it feels like a lifetime ago uh last time we did one of these episodes emily uh, Trump had not yet been arrested. Uh, he had been making noise on Truth Social about how he was potentially going to get arrested. Um, and we thought that that was a political shell game. And uh, turns out he actually did get arrested. So that happened. There's a civil lawsuit in New York against him as well. Uh, indictments likely to come in other states. Um, and then on top of that, we have a major free speech case uh, with Douglas Mackey, um, aka Ricky Vaughn, getting uh, convicted of, of essentially uh, under a statute that prevents election interference for posting a meme, um, which is a huge news in, in terms of free speech and the kind of hard tyranny that we have mostly thus far been able to avert with the First Amendment that's specifically coming from government rather than collusion with private sector businesses. Um, all of that to say, <laughs> and then today, and we're recording on Monday, we have the double resignation or parting ways um, between uh, Tucker Carlson and Fox News and then Don Lemon over at MSNBC. So I guess there's a huge hodgepodge if you want to jump in anywhere. Oh, and Mitch McConnell, rumors about Mitch McConnell finally perhaps retiring. So all that hodgepodge of news, um, some of it quite old, several weeks old. Um, but let's start with the, the Tucker leaving Fox thing, which is breaking right now. I mean, what is your take on all of that. And then if you want to throw in stuff about the Trump arrests that we've talked about it on other platforms, <laughs> I feel like it's now that feels like a year ago. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Your, your recap of the last month just now is somewhat mind blowing. It made me like stress to listen just to you running through uh, everything that's happened in the last month and just the last day, as you said, um, head of NBC Universal and Comcast also out uh, Don Lemon, Tucker Carlson, all in the span of 24 hours. And Tucker, um, you know, everybody on the right has an opinion on this. And we don't have all the information as we're recording this right now, obviously, because we're in the very, very early hours of uh, trying to understand what, what's happened. Uh, the Fox spin machine has sort of been saying that this had something to do. You, Los Angeles Times article is already out uh, saying that this this may have had something to do with uh, a lawsuit that was filed by a former Fox staffer last week alleging um, anti-Semitism and sexism, um, and that just sort of combined with everything uh, made them all, made Fox and Tucker part ways. We still don't have any clarity on whether Fox initiated that or Tucker initiated that after realizing that things were untenable. There have also been some indications perhaps it was because of uh, leaked, not leaked, but uh, things that came out in discovery that Tucker Carlson had said about Fox management uh, during the Dominion lawsuit. All that is to say, what we know is that what we already knew, basically, Tucker Carlson and Fox management doesn't get along spectacularly well. They really never have. And they shouldn't, frankly. A news division uh, should never get along very well with the business division. That's normal. It tales all this time. But if Tucker Carlson was pushed out of Fox News, which we don't know, but if he was, if that's the case, they are, uh, I think, really moving in a, a bad direction. Um, Tucker obviously gave the address at Heritage's 50th anniversary just a couple of days ago. And as I'm sure you've seen some stuff from this where he said, uh, when I just watched the whole thing and one of the moments that struck me is when Kevin Roberts turned to him and, and said, what do you think the biggest thing is over the last 20 years or time you want to choose? 
what is the biggest change? And Tucker said, the control of information. I mean, it's eerie in his prescience that that was his answer. Um, the control of information that it has, uh, instead of being democratized, it's been duopolized, basically. Um, it's totally like just creepy almost to hear just a couple of days ago, not just from a business perspective, it's silly um, on Fox's behalf, but also just from a, a moral one. Um I don't know. We're going to learn more about it, but it's, I think it's a really big loss. I think whatever he does um, on an independent basis, if he does do something on an independent basis, or if maybe he works with Sirius XM, like Megyn Kelly has done, will be a runaway success. But there's something really important about having specifically on Fox News, a populist voice, a sharp critic of the Republican Party um, that will make the network less entertaining, but I think also, um, you know, less, less, uh, representative of a huge swath of the American public. Yeah. Um, I agree with all of that. And equally like you don't have any like inside information about why this took place or the specifics, um, had the understanding going in that, you know, th there were some tensions between, uh, Tucker Carlson and the business guys and the top guys over at Fox. There's also this whole succession style drama, right? Between, <laughs> there's like a wing of the Murdoch family that wants to go in one direction and a wing that wants to go in a different direction. Right. Um, so that that's all, you know, sort of background to this, but I'm still, I was still really shocked by this. The fact that, I mean, he is the biggest, he has the biggest show on cable news. Um, and you would think that that alone would be able to give him the kind of autonomy that he wanted at a place like Fox and uh, apparently not. And even though we don't know exactly how that went down, I could add to your list of possibilities um, that after the Dominion lawsuit, maybe they wanted him to say something on air and he wouldn't. Um, that's that. That's another possibility of, of uh, mm. and then of course we don't know what kind of um, contract he has. And there's a really dicey sort of existence of some of these contracts, these non-compete contracts, right? Um, I mean, they, they do bump up against the First Amendment sometimes. Uh, so th th I don't know how this is all going to shake out. But what I wanted to ask you about it specifically, because you have written for, I think, much before a lot of people. I remember you writing about this five, six, seven years ago already, um, the, that sort of independent media uh, is potentially uh, going to, at some point, eclipse the, the traditional media. And my question is, if Tucker decides to go independent, which he could obviously join a bunch of different networks, but it, it's, it's not clear to me what mainstream sort of corporate legacy media outlet would necessarily hire him, right? You, he could get hired anywhere on the right in these smaller networks, um, you know, Daily Wire, um, one America Newsmax. I'm sure they're all like looking at their bank accounts and seeing what they can offer. Um, the blaze has already made a public offer to Tucker. Right. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure everybody would like on the right in that ecosystem would love to have Tucker. Um, but I'm not sure that there would be another mainstream sort of legacy corporate media outlet that would have him. And the question is if he goes to one of these alternative sites or he goes independent, um, and, and does a, like the, the Megyn Kelly podcast direction. I mean, how does that shake up structurally? This, the sort of, um, I guess the, yeah. How does it shake up the structure of media that we currently have? Cause where you have this, this sort of bleeding away from the mainstream networks and the success of independent networks, but this is like a, a huge personality, the equivalent of Trump leaving Twitter and going to truth social or whatever, except <laughs> potentially successful, right. In a way that, that act was not successful. I mean, any anything that Tucker starts will instantly be, you know, one of the most successful ventures in news, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I do have some insight into this just from the breaking points uh, vantage point, breaking points vantage point. Oh, that didn't mean to do that. But um, the it's it's important to remember that I think it's really actually a lot easier to do all of this now um, from an independent perspective, like even the production quality of cable television can be replicated without the budget of cable television um, because uh, a lot of this stuff is just frankly um, cheaper and easier. And so I think Tucker Carlson, if he wanted to, could, I mean, look what Glenn Greenwald's doing on Rumble. Uh, it's kind of insane. <laughs> his, his production quality is very uh, his his audience probably isn't 
might not be the same as like all of cable uh, and and it's definitely not but it's growing um and so the stuff can be done in a way that it it just never has been doable in the past it's the same thing with what like Barry Weiss is doing on Substack um you know that's a that's something that is going to rival the reporting and already has of the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and so i think that process is in motion and uh, if Tucker Carlson is collateral, I'm sure he's more than happy to be that <laughs> collateral damage um, because the process is a, a righteous one. And that doesn't mean people won't make mistakes along the way. Um, and it doesn't mean that these companies that have enormous power, uh, we were talking about NBC Universal Compa- Comcast earlier, Disney, they own everything. But at a certain point, if they're like, why is Bud Light freaking out and trying to get Gen Z uh, to drink its beer? Well, because Gen Z isn't drinking its beer. <laughs> like, it's it's not entirely different with traditional media. That people don't have the same muscle memory um, that was passed down from generations previously because there's just so much more choice that's exploded since the iPhone and social media in about 2007. Uh, the world changed dramatically. So it's not just like MTV. It's totally different than MTV arriving on the scene. It's like, you know, there is no parallel, <laughs> essentially. So, um, you know, the, this is a, this process is very much in motion. It's going to sputter. It's going to stop and start, but, um, and legacy media will try like, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be wild if they swapped out Don Lemon for Tucker Carlson over at CNN? Tucker worked at CNN for a very long time. He's probably in the past best known for his work at CNN. Um, but you know, they're, they're not going to do that for some of the same reasons that I assume Fox no longer, no longer thinks it's safe for their brand to be attached to Tucker Carlson, I imagine. Um, and by the way, it should be noted there were massive advertiser boycotts that were organized That's by exactly the left. The point. That's exactly the point I was going to bring up is uh, maybe the power of having the largest audience in cable news is substantially de- depleted within a, a media corporation like that. <clears throat> when advertisers want to, uh, you know, there's a limit on the number of advertiser dollars you can get because of this kind of cultural boycotting. Um, that probably does play into, at least in some degree, these kinds of decisions that they're making, right? Um, even though he has the best audience, he may not be bringing in the most actual revenue dollars. And that's another thing that's important about the independent model um, that, that it, it, it does, it isn't as reliant on, on those advertisers who are somewhat easily pressured. And, and you brought up another thing, like, so just all the stuff that's happened this, this month is insane. So of course we've had the Bud Light controversy and the blowback and substantial loss to their bottom line. Uh, and then we had the entire NATO leak episode we had this guy in a Discord chat <laughs> yeah. leading, leaking majorly classified and important documents, and then the media not covering a lot in, in extensively covering the way that they should have what was actually in those documents, and essentially leading a witch hunt um, to find the leaker. They got to him before the FBI did. Um, the Washington Post and the New York Times got to uh, to Shara before the FBI did, um, mm. and before yeah, so. Um, all of that to say, and actually tied to tie this all together, one of the things that potentially goes into this Tucker thing is he is apparently one of the few people who did uncritically broadcast the uh, the troop numbers and the casualty numbers uh, that were in those documents. That was apparently the only part that was very clearly doctored, right? So that that is some kind of likely um, Russian propaganda attempt, right? They basically escalated the numbers of Ukrainian dead and, and underestimated the numbers of Russian dead. Um, lots of other important stuff uh, in those those leaks, including uh, the, the line, the, the red line that U.S. intelligence service thinks um, will precipitate China's involvement directly mm-hmm. in that war. Um, Zelensky uh, being willing to strike into deeper into Russia if he had the capabilities, which sheds a lot of light, as I keep saying, I think, in different platforms on we had this whole conversation three or four months ago about like, offensive weapons versus defensive weapons. What does that mean? What's the range like? And it seemed like a highly technical conversation. But apparently, it's it is like a critical, it is a critical aspect of, of how we involve ourselves in the war there, and what how far we want to push China on the flip side. Um, there's the downplane of Belarus, there's 
Uh, some some unrelated things like that are really fascinating in that that apparently 5G is interfering generally like civilian 5G is interfering with military communications. Um, what else is in there, man? It's, it's just I feel like it's a fire hose. I know that it sounds like listening to a fire hose to listen to us right now, but it, it has been a fire hose for the last month. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to just think about all of that. Um, and the point actually the the common thread through everything is what Tucker just told Kevin Roberts that um, you know, essentially the one thing that's changed. And I think this is completely accurate. The biggest problem right now in the United States of America is the media. And there's a, because that's such a huge problem because there's such a demand in the market, there are new products and alternatives that are being offered to the extent um, that they're able to be offered. Yes, that's happening. But without the media blockage, um, we would have so much less discord. We would have so much less confusion and we would have so much less actual ignorance because of disinformation. Uh, if the, if, if the media were honest about the reporting that it's doing, if they were honest about the report coming from one direction, or the other, I mean, Tucker, um, uncritically reporting the the number the casualty numbers is is interesting although tucker has outright said you know where he comes from uh on the question of the war in ukraine and so people viewers are are smart enough to already be weighing we know that because we're all viewers we're already always weighing people's perspectives with the information that they're giving us um and so you know if, if the media would trust each other uh, if they would trust all of us as Americans, the public, uh, to just consume information and not, you know, have to lie to the public in order to uh, achieve their preferred social outcome, um, then we would just be in a, immediately a better place because we would be starting from a, a place of honesty and accuracy. And without that, there's just there's really nothing that, that you can talk about because people are talking past each other. Um, and, and that's what's really sad uh, about Tucker leaving. But then on the other side, um, maybe it's a really huge boon to independent media. Maybe it is a, maybe it is the sort of final nail in the, the corporate media coffin. I'm not optimistic about that because I think corporate media is still incredibly powerful, um, especially because the vast majority of people who are watching corporate media um, or can pay for subscriptions to the New York Times and the Washington Post to the extent that that's really propping up their business models right now. And it is. Um, those are older people anyway that might not be making the transition to independent media. So it's a, a there's more patience and, and slowness <laughs> that's, uh, that's needed along the way. Um, but if he lands on an independent and, and creates an independent platform or lands at an independent platform, um, Man, it's. I still think it's a real loss. He's not someone that um, I think you know. It's. I don't think it's ideal. I think it's always ideal to have somebody like Tucker Carlson, just an unfiltered, ashamed, abashed populist who is willing to question his own priors, willing to question his own uh, ideological sides priors on a sort of so-called mainstream platform. I think that's good. Um, but I, I don't hate him going to an independent platform and bringing more and more viewers away from um, the, that sort of legacy bubble either. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's why we've transitioned to this era where trust in individual people um, has become so important. And in the cheap, you know, sort of commercial sense, that's like the influencer phenomenon, right? Where it, it turns out that it's a better advertisement than rather than creating an advertisement and putting it on people's social feeds where they really mistrust it. If somebody that they trust and follow already says, hey, I like this product, right? Um, that turns out to be a much more effective way to advertise to people who frankly are cynical um, and and disconnected and feel like they're always being pitched a line, right? Um, mm. And... But I think that's true in news too. I mean, like in terms of transparency, I feel like people are much, are very okay with their trusted media figures making mistakes because they're being transparent about it. Here I'm thinking about Taibi, right? He made some mm -hmm. overall relatively minor errors in this reporting on the Twitter files and it became a big story. And of course the media were writing about it as a bigger story than the actual content of the Twitter files. Um, 
but you know, the fact that Taibi does come out and say, well, okay, I made these three errors, like here's how I made them, you know, um, he actually doesn't lose a ton of credibility. And then when you turn around and point to the massive and, and important underlying errors that legacy media outlets have made, I mean, just start with the, the you know, Trump Russia hoax and go from there, right? I mean, um, <laughs> most of the major narratives for the four years of the Trump presidency were false, like in material content, not in like, I ideologically disagree with them, but in actual factual and material content, they were false. Um, so I, I think that is kind of the direction more generally. And that makes this very different than say, I don't know, thinking about back to Fox News firing Bill O'Reilly for totally different reasons, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, for, for more personal reasons, kind of like what's happening to Don Lemon, I think. Um, it, it's, you know, that's a very different story. Like very clearly, Bill O'Reilly was the best performing show on Fox, but Fox, he needed Fox more than Fox needed him. And I'm not saying that Fox needs Tucker more than Tucker needs Fox. I don't know that yet, but it's certainly a question now in a way that it wasn't say like 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine having this conversation 10 years ago? I I mean, this stuff didn't happen, not to bring it back to Trump, but this stuff didn't happen until the media bubble completely cracked. Like there were cracks in the foundation, but Donald Trump is... Donald Trump's election was such a wake-up call for consumers. And then the next three years after the Mueller report uh, lands and it doesn't have anything that people were being told breathlessly night after night was going to be in it, in it, um, that just completely explodes. And obviously this technology, you know, like Young Turks dates back like, I don't know, 20 years now. Like there are people who have been doing YouTube shows for new, t- new shows on YouTube for a really long time. Um, and you know, the, the blogosphere of the aughts obviously existed, but, uh, you know, where is uh, Ezra Klein now? He's at the New York Times. Where are all a lot of those other bloggers, um, some of them are on Substack, but some of them were swallowed up by legacy media. Um, but just the the fact that Substack right now, Rumble right now, I mean, these are these are serious businesses. They're not jokes at this point. They're serious businesses um, that are that are offering alternatives. And I just think, as silly as it might look now, uh, to compare Glenn on Rumble to. Uh, or or what Tucker was doing on one hour of Fox News um, and, and to say that this is like groundbreaking. No, I mean, it, it is the breaking of the ground. <laughs> like The ground might not be broken, but the ground is breaking. It's in the process. Um, and so there's the, it, we're at the early stages of something that will necessarily be transformational because in a world where everything is niche um, and there is no monoculture because there is there are their broadcast licenses are not just restricted to three people um, on radio and TV in a world where you have to appeal to niche audiences. That means the bar to entry is lower. And so as that splintering keeps on happening and happening, you're going to have more competition, which maybe we should just call it, rename this the Milton Friedman appreciation episode um, because that's great. Like that's exactly what we want. <laughs> It'd be a little awkward for me since I wrote a critique of Milton Friedman fairly recently. <laughs> yeah, a good one. But um, so I was just thinking as we were saying that, I mean, and and we'll move on from this topic in just a minute, because I feel like it might be more fascinating to us being sort of part of this media thing than lots of people. But I do think as to your point and the point that Tucker made at the Heritage Foundation Gala, um, this is a key part of the fabric of, of how the regime we currently operate under works. Um, And we haven't been, and this is one thing that actually I think, obviously there are lots of ways in which the Soviet Union was worse um, than than (laughs) our current situation. You're never going to hear me say otherwise. Um, Mm. I think that's actually one way in some degree where the Soviet Union was weirdly better because like nobody, everyone knew that Pravda was full of garbage. Um, Yeah. Something else. But like, at least by the time you get to the later part of the Soviet Union, right? It's it's not like people are are actually, they don't, don't actually trust their media. Um, here, I do think like it, it, we can get a false impression, especially in our demographic, right, um, about how many people really do still trust the media. They're, they're, they're not completely broken and cynical. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I, I think we, you know, to the extent that, that that trust continues to break and splinter, I actually think that's, that's a really positive thing. Um, 
if we can get to the place where the Soviet Union was about Pravda with regard to cable news and legacy media, I, I, I think that would be a positive thing overall, even though there are, as Trump would say, many fine people. Um, <laughs> many fine <laughs> and people many involved. such cases. Yeah, many. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, Tucker's already on site. I looked it up. It's 3.5 million, which is huge for its biggest, most watched show on cable news. Rogan has 11 million listeners in his audience. Right now, yeah. it's it's not a perfect comparison because Rogan also like interviews. Like he doesn't just he's not it's not just a news show. It's not politics. Right, people don't listen. It, there's there's an inherent and as you're always pointing out, right? There's like this huge gap between even the most watched political shows and like whatever BoJack Horseman or <laughs> or um, you know the entertainment world is just like posting much much bigger numbers and and Rogan kind of splits the baby there and is halfway in between in both worlds. So maybe it's not a fair comparison, but still, I, I do feel like that's you know, you can build an audience of millions in an independent way. And if anyone in the news business can do that, it's Tucker. Oh, yeah. I mean, couldn't have, like, I have nothing to add to that. Although I would, except for that, um, those numbers, yeah, it, it's it's an apples to oranges, as you were pointing out. Um, I can't imagine what Tucker would post if he was doing like a weekly podcast, I think it would be competitive with Rogan um, immediately. And, you know, Me- Megan Kelly actually was able to do that. It took her maybe a, a year to kind of lay that groundwork and start building, but um, it just was pretty quickly super successful. Um, and she was obviously, of course, with SiriusXM. Um, there are other companies, whether it's not going to be CNN or MSNBC, um, but there are other companies that might latch on to, to Tucker. I mean, SiriusXM is one example. Obviously, they have um, Howard Stern, even though he's less controversial. But like, th- there's there's something afoot. We've talked about the vibe shift before. Um, there's something afoot that will allow somebody to make a lot of money off of the great work that Tucker Carlson does. Whether it's just Tucker or anybody else is the question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I would love to see him just start a television news network he would actually be competitive i think i mean i don't know anything about starting a news network so maybe that's a crazy idea but i would think that actually like an alternative network anchored by tucker and where he actually poaches some talent from all these other people i mean he seems it seems like if anyone could do that it would be him i mean that that would be an incredible way for this to end um speaking this is this is very much my next topic it's very much in the same vein there's this um pew research center poll that shows um, numbers on, so it's it's percentage who have a blank opinion of each federal agency is favorable versus unfavorable, right? Um, and it just lists a bunch of, of um, federal agencies, some of them you would expect having this like partisan divide, right? Like the CDC versus, you know, is very unfavorable for Republicans, very favorable for, for Democrats. That makes perfect sense in the post-COVID era, right? Um, or like the Department of Education, probably a long-term split, right, between Republicans and, and Democrats. But some of the agencies with the largest partisan split now in terms of, of uh, Republicans versus Democrats and favorability ratings are the FBI, the CIA, and the Department of Homeland Security, all of which have more unfavorable ratings um, among Republicans. That's, that is something that's, again, like I know we're just talking over that there is a sea change happening here in terms of, of breaking with these kinds of law enforcement and intelligence agencies after the last five years that I think is really fascinating. I mean, if you think about like, I don't know, two, 2007, um, got to feel like those numbers would be reversed, right? Yeah. And, and that's, you know, in one sense, it's good and it's not good. So it's it's good because if opinions were going in the other direction, we would be in big trouble. <laughs> because that would mean people are taking the exact wrong thing away from all that's happened over the course of the last decade um, plus. But it's it's not good in the sense, obviously, that having a low trust society and low trust in law enforcement um, is a really bad state for a constitutional republic to be in. Um, I, I think that's, you, you can look at what you need in the recipe of like a successful constitutional republic or democracy, broadly speaking, and trust in uh, law enforcement authority is obviously, you know, it doesn't have to be 100% trust, but some general trust in law enforcement and authorities is a really big part of that, um, of course. So the the left 
had some points I think the right is waking up to points during the Bush years that the, the right is waking up to because um, it's not just because it, the administrative state hadn't turned on conservatives yet. I don't necessarily think that's what's behind it. I think it's more just that the growth of government um, some of the stuff wasn't clear because it was happening around us in the the nine the post nine eleven era. Um, things were happening so quickly that people weren't like able to catch their breath and like really think through um, everything to the extent that it needed to be, especially when people were actually afraid. So uh, yeah, you're right. Like looking at try, trying to imagine what this would look like a decade ago. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think we know there probably are numbers. It's just a total uh, reverse reversal, but in a good in a good direction. Well, I guess it doesn't matter at this point, but it does. I I wonder for how long these agencies have been as rotten as they clearly seem to me now. So in other words, I wonder if I was completely naive uh, 10 years ago with regard to law enforcement, particularly federal law enforcement um, in this country, or if there was a tipping point in these institutions that just was brought forward at this point. Like here I'm thinking about like, I don't know, tipping point. We see this happening all over, but like, let's say just pick one to to talk about the previous media example, right? Clearly um, ousting that editor, sorry, what, I always forget this guy's name, but ousting the editor at the New York times um, over the cotton op-ed and the complaints of younger, uh, younger staffers, was a tipping point within that organization where it went from, uh, you know, merely left-wing liberal to completely controlled by a new ideology. And I guess I'm wondering if, if, if the same dynamic exists in these other institutions, which are in some like broad sense, right. Associated with the right um, law and order hierarchy, right. And so, which is not to say that they were like Republican institutions or staffed with conservatives. Right. Um, but there is something about, um, you know, enforcing order uh, and, and prosecuting people and, um, you know, and, and dealing with uh, a sort of violent global scene. Um, I think that, that does draw a certain kind of, of, um, interest from the right uh, and, and probably draws personnel more of a type of people who are at least moderate or right leaning. And I'm guessing my question, I, and I don't know the answer to it. Like there's two options here. One, I, I was just a naive idiot and didn't realize <laughs> how, how completely rotten these institutions were. Um, you know, even let's say 20 years ago, alternatively, what has happened to the personnel within those institutions that they have shifted so radically from like a, a moderate or even conservative sort of at least personality type of people who would staff those institutions to very clearly. And, and, and I guess I'm comparing this to like, you know, there, there, the, there's a, there's a type to the, for example, the kind of Republican that went left during the Trump era and didn't just dislike Trump or whatever, but like, has gone really and truly left, you know? Um, and I'm not just talking about some of the big names like David French or Bill Crystal, but I'm talking about like the people that I know in real life, a lot of these sort of upper middle-class income managerial type people with, um, you know, white collar jobs, sometimes agency jobs. I'm wondering if that managerial, like big divide, um, economically where you're surrounded by the cultural left all the time has played into what these agencies have become, or again, totally open to the possibility that I was just a naive idiot and didn't realize how, how corrupt these agencies are. I think one is because of the other. I think we were naive because um, it wasn't clear yet exactly how quickly the people in those positions, the people in charge of those uh, agencies, it wasn't clear how quickly they had been corrupted. Um, so on the one hand, I think nobody or, or no agency, conservatives would agree it's not ideal um, to, you know, if you sat down Paul Ryan and wrote all of this down on paper, I think everyone would agree, agree it's not the ideal state of American democracy to have, uh, the Patriot Act, but it was a necessary response to a new 
threat, you know, new sort of technological threat with air transportation and, um, you know, global communication, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's very clear that the power delegated was too much. On the other hand, though, I think there was a naivete or maybe a wishful thinking or maybe even just a, um, you know, sort of 90s, early aughts, um, American optimism, the end of history optimism that had us all fairly convinced we had landed on a healthy consensus and that consensus was safe, that we could undertake these uh, large scale projects of stability because we had landed on that sort of end of history consensus of what an appropriate government looked like, um, of what the future looked like. Um, and so I think to some extent, I don't, I think naivete is pejorative and I don't mean it in that sense. Um, and I think wishful thinking is the same thing. I, I actually think there's some rational explanation for why the right largely, and I don't want to take away from the Rand and Ron Pauls who were calling attention to some of these problems, but I, I don't think, like, Why Liberalism Failed is not a book that was written in 2002, right? And, and that's for a reason. Um, and that was a conversation that honestly wasn't happening on the right period um, because liberalism was still intertwined with um, Christianity and, you know, the the a lot of that, like the, the sort of cultural right felt like it was well intertwined with liberalism and didn't feel like it was fusionism, right? It didn't feel like any of that had, had fully splintered. And then I think it became very clear to us when the managerial class got power, um, you know, maybe you could say that power corrupted absolutely, or maybe you could say it's, it's because liberalism, the inevitable arc of liberalism, and I don't necessarily believe this, but that would be the argument. The inevitable arc of liberalism is secularism. Um, and, you know, like militant secularism or hedonism, whatever. But, um, when that, when the acceleration of technology took off, it just laid bare, um, how quickly a lot of people, uh, abandoned principles we thought held us together kind of permanently. And we had been comforted by that. Yeah. I mean, I had opportunity recently to go back and read Bush's second inaugural. This is W. Um, and, and obviously related to the wars after nine 11, this is, you know, the, still the beginning parts of these wars, uh, which by the way, lest we forget were supported overwhelmingly uh, in, in the, the first, uh, first several years of the war that that they were very popular wars initially. And like many of America's wars, rightly or wrongly, uh, that, that drag on, they became extremely unpopular over time. Um, but this line really struck me. Uh, it's, it is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world. Now that's naive. That that was something that like that sounded like an achievable goal in 2005. To the point where you would write it into an inaugural address. You would write it into an inaugural address without shame. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that goes to sort of the the point you were making. Um, I think the the same point that for example, Douthat made about looking backwards um uh, looking backwards at the 1990s and 2000s saying what actually looked like, he says it more elegantly than I'm going to remember to repeat, but um, you know, actually what looked like a strong tree um, turned out to be completely hollow. And the only reason it looked like a, you know, a solid tree is because the winds were mild. In other words, mm -hmm. this is pre iPhone revolution, as you always like to point out. Um, this is, you know, sort of the, the, still in this post-Soviet collapse period for the United States um, immediately after getting kicked in the teeth by 9-11, but still, you know, without that fundamental kind of cynicism and, and resignation and distrust that I think is the hallmark of politics, I would say since 2016, but I think considerably before that, it's just that that was the first obvious national expression of that kind of politics. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, just, just going back and reading that, that like strikes me as I probably once, I mean, I, I wasn't paying that much attention in 2005. <laughs> high school. <laughs> I mean, I was paying some attention, but not like, you know, intensely. Um, but I, I probably would have thought that would sound, that sounded reasonable. Yeah, I think you're right. No, I, I think you're right. And that's something I, I was actually considering this the other day that there are so many people, younger people on the right who have very reasonable, impassioned arguments against the generation before them. Um, and I would include us in that, uh, Inez. Uh, but more critiques. Yeah. It, but, you know, some of that really is that the context just they didn't know how the book the next chapters would go um and and knowing how the next chapters obviously is you know hugely beneficial to avoiding making some of the same mistakes um but at that kind of apex of history moment um not the end but maybe what did maybe with as more years pass we will look at the the 90s and the early 2000s as maybe like the peak of of civilization and then everything went downhill from there um but from that vantage point there were a lot of things uh my computer's glitching so excuse all the beeps but there were a lot of things that uh just totally it was like we were at the top of a roller coaster and just completely started going down the drop um, after that. So I get it. Like I, I actually, that line is particularly, I think, ridiculous. Um, every nation, I mean, gosh, but it's the flowery rhetoric of a time in which ending you know, tyranny in the world is the goal of the United States. Every nation ending tyranny in the world. I mean, that is just unthinkable today because we understand the human condition and by the way to or rather i would say that like we were kicked in the face and reminded of the human condition it's not like it's a new thing to understand the human condition or at least understand as well as our our sad attempts to understand it or you know i'm just i just want to say that's not a new well uh, (laughs) i well i actually think there's this um it, it bothers me a lot i think there's this strain of almost like Rousseauian thought that creeps into um, like evangelical uh, evangelical conceptions of humanity sometimes, and probably especially back then. Um, How often do we hear the line? This was, by the way, coined by uh, a man of the cloth, Martin Luther King Jr., that the the moral arc of history is long and it bends towards justice. That is not true because man is fundamentally fallen. Like if you are a Christian, if you are George W. Bush, a born again Christian, it's absurd to say the goal of the United States is to end tyranny everywhere because tyranny will always be with us. Uh, and, And that I think talking about humanity in that way um, really revealed a short-sightedness and, you know, a comfort that was false. Uh, and we allowed ourselves to sort of be seduced by the, this very short time period of relative prosperity. Um, and if you think about it, if you grew up like George W. Bush did, um, you know, in a time period after we had just triumphed and, you know, in the Second World War, and we feel like we're just triumphing in the Cold War. You know, people would put Vietnam aside because um, we still didn't fully know the extent of institutional failure. Um, we we actually still probably don't know the full extent of it, but um, you know, we, th- that was probably very very comforting. And uh, you know, their entire lives they'd only known um, America ostensibly on that right side of history and the momentum going in one direction. And that's a, I think that lulled people into a false sense, uh, a false sense of security about how much we can control the human condition with modern democracy. Yeah. You know, that, that line about the arc of history being long and bending towards justice strikes me as the sort of thing that um, could only be either imagined or said in the United States for better or for worse. We have to live (laughs) with that. I mean, I think it's the same impulse that took us, across the continent and manifest destiny. It took us to the moon. Um, but I, I, there's an argument to be made. It's the same impulse that it makes us imagine that men can become women and that we can clear the world of tyranny as a national goal. Um, I mean, for better or worse, that's very American. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not in the Dean camp as you well know about it, but there does seem to be, and it's interesting to me that the, the sort of what you call the Rousseauian, I think that's a good term for it because it's blended with this 
I think that really took off in the 1960s in, in America, mm-hmm. where you like mm-hmm. you read materials from before 1968 or so. You know, it's not exact, obviously, but um, you don't get this sense. But there there is this real, it's blended with the therapeutic idea, the idea of man as like, ultimately, um, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I think I should probably refine this thought further before I inflict it on anyone. Do it. <laughs> um, no, but uh, like there is this sense of that there's this the self, right? That you have a decline of religion, you have a self that's sort of separate from the body. Like a, you have to create a new new idea of the soul, and then the self that you can self construct, very connected to the idea of individual liberty, um, and and that those those souls somehow want the same things. They want uh, the same type of, of liberty, the same type of prosperity, the same type of yearning to be free, I think was the Bush line, right? Um, mm-hmm. We imagine that the children's transitory needs, for example, transitory ideas about who and what they are, we imbue them with a special significance. All of this strikes me as particularly Rousseauian. Um, and, and at root, this idea that there is something very, very good and free at the, the heart of the human person. And that is, of course, in direct contradiction, not only with Christianity, with Judaism, uh, but with <laughs> the whole of the 20th century, I think after which people had to reconsider <laughs> such notions, hopefully, but that there does seem to be something about that notion, utopian notion of, of um, what people ultimately are and want that, that returns uh, and seems to be irresistible and has its particular form in America as this kind of like optimism of remaking the world and, and ourselves um, in part because America has done an incredible job of, of doing that better than any, um, any empire in, in history. I think uh, in terms of like creating this kind of prosperity and Liberty, um, you know, hell in a country where you can put a man on the moon, why not? Right. There is that, that, but, but I think now, that's maybe the biggest difference. There's such a sense of limitation, mm. um, maybe a correct one. Maybe we've gone too far into the cynical, but there just feels speaking of vibe ships. There's such a, a feel of like limitation now uh, that I have. And I don't think I'm the only one in how I look at our politics, the world, you know, geopolitics as well. Like all of it, there's such a sense of limitation. You go back and you read something from 2005 like this. You're like, wow, you really felt like you could do anything. Different language. Yes, yeah, different. Your your point about the MLK line is so interesting that it could only be written, the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice, that it could only be written in America. And by the way, at that 1960s America is super interesting um, because it's the same thing I think that makes us a little bit myopic when it comes to technology is that because we're at this like hyper novel rate of change, we don't realize how quick the rate of change is. We're just sort of used to things being like things changing really fast. So that fastness almost feel it, it's like you're spinning. It's like you're spinning so fast that you can't feel how quickly you're spinning. Like, you know, the way that we, we are just on earth, you know, you're moving, you can, you feel like you're standing still, but you're actually hurtling through time and space. Um, I think that phenomena applies to like America and, and the West probably more generally in the last century that um, you, it felt like, progress was progress in quotes was the natural state of the human condition. When in fact, what we, what, if you are living in the West on planet earth in the last hundred years, what you experienced during your lifetime is incredibly unique and has only happened to a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of humans who have ever walked on the earth. Yeah. Um, And on, on that note, I do want to touch on one more, I think equally sort of, serious subject, um, not only because it involves tragedy, but because it's so infrequently uh, talked about in any kind of deep or serious way, despite all of the sound and fury we have around it, that is school shootings, right? So this month also includes, of course, this tragedy um, in Covenant Christian in Tennessee. Um, There's obviously political brouhaha afterwards with the Tennessee Three and I don't know. I mean, it is it is frankly impressive how the left managed to turn a transgender shooter shooting up a Christian school into a conversation about how transgender community is suffering and uh, there's racism in Tennessee. Like that, that is like a, a you know kind of standing O moment for 
narrative control for legacy media. And that's what we started with. But I wanted to have like the deeper discussion of why this this is such a phenomenon, it's particularly in the United States. So um, it is true that there are mass shootings in other other countries. Um, but this specific phenomenon of the school shooting starting, I think, with Columbine in the 90s. Um, and it's kind of defied because the way we talk about this, just to set it up and, and say what I'm dissatisfied with our current conversation on it, and then maybe we can build something, at least begin to think about this in a more deep and productive way, I hope. Because um, what happens is one of these terrible tragedies happens. And then depending on certain aspects of, of the, the person who did it, right, um, we, we go through a predictable series of conversations, whether that's about gun control, domestic terrorism, earlier in the cycle, like early, like if we're talking Columbine times, it was video games, right? Um, we try to like come up for with a reason why um, this particular notoriety is being sought by a particular category of people. Um, and why they choose to inflict their notoriety on us in this particularly tragic way. And so there's a great article over at I am 1776, um, called American devils. I highly recommend on this that really links this up and basically says, you know, each one of these phenomenon comes out of a particular moment in American culture. So 1970s, you have this rise of the violent cults, right? You had Jim Jones and, mm -hmm and Manson's and, you know, all of that. Um, and then it goes into um, serial killers, right? In the 80s and early 90s, the whole jam. Now we have this sort of resurgent with the podcast on it, but there was this like media frenzy over serial killers. And there were a number of very prominent serial killers. We gave them names. There was coverage uh, every time there was, an, uh, you know, a new murder, it became national news. Um, you know, in speculation about whether that murder was connected to one of these serial killers, right? Um, have a series of movies, Silence of the Lambs, right? All, all around this concept that gripped the American imagination and had, had real, there were real serial killers out there, right? But obviously, like school shootings, still a very um, low probability phenomenon, but nevertheless seemed to grip the media imagination. And now it seems to me that we've done two decades on school shootings. Um, and probably fueled them like we did serial killers uh, with the media coverage and fascination. But why, why is it that this is an American, uniquely American phenomenon? Why are, and I don't expect you to give like a pat answer to this, but um, I'm just tired of this conversation where it happens. We yell at each other about gun control for, and, and, you know, obviously I think correctly, the right says this has nothing to do with gun control. Right. Um, and the left says it absolutely has to do with gun control. We have to ban assault weapons and you have to turn in your, your handguns, right? This is, or, or this, this is going to have blood on your hands, right? Whatever. There's that discourse that goes on every time. I have strong opinions about it. And then usually what ends up happening um, is that the right goes along with the left and sends another $100 million to like woke school counselors on the guise of mental health, right? Um, and, and, then, and then we don't talk about it again until it happens again. But what does two things why do you why, speculate why you think this is this particular phenomenon is connected to our particular moment and all the cynicism and everything that we've been talking about um why it's had this particular output and also you know how can we start a serious conversation about how you know to prevent it is there anything we can do to prevent that or do, do we just have to live with this this tragic phenomenon, which is something no one wants to say, but maybe is, is, is the truth? I don't know. I think it's actually really a really simple answer. Um, and there's one variable to me that makes it clear this is particularly related to... Um, the, I think if any country in the world had our media culture... And our levels of sort of, uh, our, our, le our levels of social capital. So being low, um, then I think you would see the same thing over and over again in any other society. Uh, I think it, it's very clear. Zed Jelani wrote about this for Berkeley, uh, a number of years ago. It was very interesting. A survey that, that pretty much showed there's a, a definitive link between media coverage of mass shootings and copycats. That's not to say 
it's the media's fault for creating more mass shootings. No, it's, it's a, a culture, a broken culture's fault. Um, and in many cases, it's negligent parents' fault. In in some cases, um, you know, it's, you can point to a million other things um, as, you know, like the precipitating variable that absolutely caused this problem. But um, when the media has covered these stories and when you have an internet, democratized internet where there are all of these tumblers and true crime uh, intrigue pages, whatever it is, um, it just makes it a very attractive solution to a tiny, you know, to what, five people a year um, of all of the people who are suffering from fatherlessness and alienation, you know, you, you get some five people a year um, that, that looks attractive to them as an escape hatch. And I, I really think it's just a, a human thing. And if you placed any group of humans in the situation that America is, you know, starting in 1995, um, 1990, maybe you're going to get the same thing over and over again. You know, as soon as Columbine happened, the horse was out of the barn, the can of worms had been opened because that became the romanticized escape hatch for people. And so again, I, I really think it's as simple as like the, the can of worms was opened in with, with Columbine and, you know, with Columbine, there were all kinds of issues that uh, exist with other mass shooters too. So everything being constant, um, I think it's just a, a way that human beings are going to react um, because they want to experience something similar. Yeah, I think that's really similar to what um, this guy wrote. Uh, I'm trying to look up his name. It's I am 1776, but uh, Benjamin Roberts, um, who mm -hmm. wrote an incredible piece on this. Um, really long, difficult. It doesn't doesn't um, kind of defies easy quotation. Although I, I have a couple paragraphs here, and that I think has made it so that it it, it was. Um, I think otherwise you would have seen this piece go completely viral in a way that you know, every so often you see a piece that just like hits on some important thing um, that nobody else is talking about. But but uh, to the extent that it's quotable, I'll, I'll give you a couple of paragraphs that I think are quite similar to what um, what you just said. He writes that the dissolution of religious faith, family, collective identity, and the clandestine ghettoization of psychosis into cyberspace speaks to an immense sabotage of the support systems previously available to maladjusted individuals. Here he uses a name of one of the shooters, my policy not to, so one of these shooters. Um, and others like him are the black-hearted bastards of atomization. And atomization is the inevitable fruit of liberalism, which shreds civilizational standards and succor in its rabid drive to liberate man from his body, his people, and the institutions that bind him. A mass shooter isn't just out to commit suicide on a grand scale, however. Having been invisible his whole life, he commits the worst crime in hopes of airtime. A vision of his face having finally having eyes laid upon it, even in horror by an entire nation. He hopes his visage will, for a glimmer of a moment, become the mask of pure sin, so frequently exchanged and worn on television screens today. He wants the undeniable celebrity of the devil. Yeah. And I think that that really does describe something about this phenomenon. It's it's not that look, it's actually there's sort of these mass consequences of atomization that we've discussed many times this sort of lack of meaning in a, a post god is dead world right um and and particularly you know we can talk about all the things that have accelerated that you point to acceleration in technology uh, breakdown of family all these things of course most people who lack meaning right um are not murderous and not particularly hor horrible in this 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 is like in the category of murderous, this is a particularly horrible one, right? Um, but it, it's interesting that that small percentage of people that, uh, what's interesting, I guess, or, or challenging to us is how the broader ills of our particular moment, why this particular form for that tiny percentage of, of a percentage of people who probably would be cracked anyway, right? How they decide to, to crack or how they decide to take vengeance on, on the rest of the world seems to me somehow instructive about the society in which we live. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's, I, I think it's very much that. And I think if you look at, um, 
exactly the the study that Zed points to um, out of Berkeley about causation from media coverage. Um, I think it's very evident that people are uh, acting something out um, like they they are casting themselves as X, Y, and Z. Um, and again, I think we're going to see um, a lot of different, we're going to see a lot of different things happen like this. Um, not, not necessarily mass shootings, but a lot more acting out. Um, and it's interesting that the covenant shooter obviously had a kind of non-binary or transgender identity. Um, because I think that's another way that people are acting out their angst. Um, it's an expression of angst. And that's obviously a, a much, much, uh, less violent, uh, expression of, of angst. But I think we are looking for meaning and purpose, um, in a lot of different places. And to your point, actually, just to bring things full circle about the security state and these like institutions wielding their power, I, I think Columbine was a good uh, wake up call to everyone that should have been a wake up call to everyone. Um, it should have been something that like the silver lining is, you know, there is, you know, I shouldn't even say that there is no silver lining. There is no good. Um, but it should have been a takeaway that people are going to be searching for just like, as they're groping for meaning and purpose, they're going to land on, on horrible expressions to cope with it in a, a high technology world where they can, um, you know, do a lot of damage with less uh, effort, whatever it is, and or with less even planning um, and more immediacy. Man, um, that should have that should have been very clear to us that the social fabric was tearing in ways that were going to interact with technology um, really painfully. But I don't think there's something that's like. I don't think this says anything bad about the average American person or about the American government. I think this is humans when placed into um, a, a society with the levels of, of freedom, but also the levels of um, kind of decadence that ours have uh, just sort of inevitably that ours has sort of inevitably as a consequences of the really rapid innovations and in technology that we ourselves came up with over the last 100 years that have really benefited people in many, many ways, new medicines, um, new, new, many, many things. Um, but it's incredibly alienating and disorienting. And um, for a while that wasn't clear to us, um, but it should have started to become clear to us you know, with things like Columbine in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, and I think now the difference is we understand these things not as uh, aberrations, but as patterns of expressions from, at least on the right, as expressions of the same pain um, that's, you know, taking people in, in various directions, but as probably one of the most severe expressions um, and risks that comes with all of these changes. Yeah, I guess it's a, a version of the the Warhol uh, statement, right? Like in the future, everyone will be famous for fifteen minutes. Well, that was the future of maybe two thousand. Now it's everybody will be hated for fifteen minutes. And yeah. uh, this is this is one way to make yourself the most hated of all. Um, kind of an apotheosis of of the two minutes hate that seems to turn on each of us in in sort of consequence uh, or in in series in in this world. But I, I guess let's wrap up with this. It's it just it. It seems the problem with this analysis that we're doing, which I think holds a lot more weight and truth than some of the surface level political conversation, is that it doesn't have an answer, right? It, there, there isn't a, a bill that we can pass then to make the less the, the next, you know, murder of children in school less likely. And I think that's like very difficult for us to deal with. I mean, I, I, look, I think there are some things we can do around the edges. I do think we can harden, you know, uh, schools in certain ways, right? Um, whether or not yes. that includes an armed guard. I mean, we saw that that's not a, a silver bullet either, pun intended, right? We had instances where those guards were totally ineffective. Um, you know, we, we can definitely uh, try in a First Amendment society to encourage the media not to grant notoriety to the faces and names of these people and to only report on the facts, even the motives and so on of these shooters without 
giving them the, the kind of notoriety that comes with being named and pictured in every media outlet. And I do think those things would do some good. Um, but it seems to me that if somebody is determined to kill children, to, to make themselves mm-hmm. this American devil, there's not a whole lot that any modicum of a free society um, can ultimately do to stop them. I think that's completely true. Um, and that's where, uh, yeah, that's probably one of the most difficult problems anyone could raise because it involves curtailing freedoms um, or it involves this kind of nebulous, um, you know, the opposite of death by a thousand cuts, you know, success by a thousand bandages, whatever it is that like we start to vote in our personal lives, the way that we all like you have the sense of awareness and, you know, you, you don't glamorize single motherhood and you don't crave single motherhood and you don't glamorize, um, you know, as a society, we don't, we don't allow Hollywood to get away with glamorizing those things or we don't, allow the media to cover things in certain ways. Um, but also that we just, I wrote a story actually after Uvalde, uh, it was like exactly because of this question, because I didn't have answers to it um, of like, I think it was like six or seven things that you can, that six or seven ways that that could have been stopped by uh, more social cohesion in the community. Um, and then you can just sort of extrapolate that to six or seven things you can do in your community um, to, uh, to prevent, you know, anyone, anyone from sort of, fall, sort of falling through that, um, not government safety net, but that actual social, you know, both government and social safety net, like human safety net, private safety net. And uh, I think, sadly, that's probably the best solution, because it's not to say there aren't policy solutions, I agree with you. But, but sadly, you know, unless, you know, as humans, we decide to stop, stop living so decadently, um, you know, we make those decisions on our own. We make those decisions in the the ballot, uh, you know, at the at the in the voting booths. We make those decisions in our own personal lives. Um, man, if we don't do that on individual terms, I just don't think their the, the policy all stops short. So that's why it's tough because you hit that brick wall no matter what. Yeah, on on that note um we're gonna have to to say something for our listeners just before we wrap up this is the 100th episode of this podcast so uh thank you for for tuning in thank you for um you know listening to us i i hope that these conversations um are are actually in some degree helpful for anyone i think they're certainly helpful and sometimes enjoyable for for emily and i but um we really appreciate everybody who's tuning in uh, to, to listen, listen to them. Um, I'm hoping that in some small way that we, we do uh, affect the direction of this country that I love and Emily loves. So uh, we are all in, we are all in, in this uh, nation together, unless you're a listener from another country, in which case <laughs> we have nothing to say to you. No, I'm kidding. Um, so uh, that, that may sound like hubris, but I, I mean it in the exact opposite sense, just because I, I think, it's important to to try to actually describe the sense that we all have of, of, that we are living in the Chinese curse of interesting times. Um, and, and it's, it's the best we can do is to make sense of it as best we can and to talk to other people who are trying to make sense of it in an honest and a way as well. So uh, thanks for, thanks for tuning into a hundred episodes of, of high noon. And uh, I guess we'll see you next time. Be brave. We'll see you next time on the 101st high noon. <laughs>